The Bucket Plan On Demand series is brought to you by Clarity to Prosperity, a financial training, coaching, and IP development organization led by financial advisors, coaches, and business leaders committed to taking a holistic approach on advising. To learn more about our organization and upcoming training opportunities for financial professionals, visit ClarityToProsperity.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bucket Plan On Demand. I'm your host, Dave Allison, and we have a great episode in store for you today. We have Dr. Daniel Crosby joining us. Dr. Crosby is the Chief Behavioral Officer of Orion and I had the fortunate opportunity to get to hear Dr. Crosby speak at the annual Ascent Conference just this past month. And uh, he did a presentation called The Mind in the Market. And I thought it was just so relevant to how we think about our job as advisors, how we're helping them navigate, obviously, all the, the volatility in the market, managing and maximizing their investments but also the behavioral aspects of everything. I mean, at the end of the day, the bucket plan itself, our process that we run with clients all built around the book is so much of a behavioral process, right? To keep clients kind of in their seats and to help them put emotions aside. Daniel, again, thanks for jumping on and joining us today. Yeah, Dave, my pleasure. So could you, maybe for, for all of our listeners who haven't had the opportunity to see you speak or read one of your books, could you share just a little bit about your background? Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to. So I am a clinical psychologist by education. So I went to school with a very different career in mind. My sort of my aspiration at the time was to be, to be a therapist. And I, I found out about three years into my doctoral program that I didn't like it very much. And so what really one of the biggest problems was I was just sort of taking work home with me. It was very stressful. It was very intense. And, and I think the same way that being an advisor can be intense. <clears throat> and I just didn't, I didn't have great boundaries. I was very young and it was just sort of stressing me out. And so I, I came to my father who is himself a financial advisor and I said, look, dad, I, I love learning about why people do the things that they do. I love studying about human behavior. But he said, I, I, but I said, I, I don't want to do it in sort of a medical, a medical context. And he said, well, you should look into my line of work because there's a ton of psychology in my work. And at this point, I'm like 23 years old. And I had always sort of envisioned my dad as being a salesperson, a salesperson slash numbers guy slash stock picker. And I had never sort of supposed that there was any psychology to his work. But this simple comment on my dad's part sort of sent me down a path. And my dad didn't have the language to say, hey, you should look into behavioral finance. I mean, my dad did very much did not know what that was at the time. But this, this process, this sort of question he raised sent me down a path that's landed me where I am today. And I've, I've kind of made it my professional goal to be a translator between the ivory tower and sort of boots on the ground financial advisors like my dad, who, who aren't privy perhaps to all the great research and all the great knowledge and need it translated in a way that's a little bit applicable and, and utilitarian. What year would you say that was when you it, when you started making that transition and talking to your dad about a potential career change? 
So let's see. I started. Oh my gosh, like 2006. Okay. Yeah, 2006. I, I was gonna guess because I I actually graduated college in 2006 with the degree in finance, and I remember my senior year. Out of all the academic coursework. I think there was like seven pages dedicated to behavioral finance back right. then. It was like around things like anchoring in a stock position and very, very, very small segment. And it's quite interesting how this this whole side of behavioral finance has just blown up because at the end of the day, I mean, I look at all of our advisors, I would actually argue more of them kind of play the, the psychologist role than the stock picker role these days because we're leveraging institutional asset managers, third-party managers to manage the majority of the money. So much of us kind of bring our value as, as a, that, that behavioral coach for the client at the end of the day. Yeah. I started looking into this in 2006. I got my PhD in like 2007, 2008, and really got into behavioral finance in a, in a big way a couple years later. And when I was starting out, I would go, I started out on my own, like as a small consultancy, and I would go to big firms and say, hey, let me help you. And this is sort of rooted in this thing called behavioral economics. And people would be like, this is not a thing. Like, like this is like, this is, I don't, we don't know what you're talking about. This is not a thing that we've ever heard of. And like, we kind of don't believe it was like a unicorn, right? And then now we fast forward to today and you talked about the Ascent Conference. There was a degree of enthusiasm and acceptance for that, for, for this work at that conference and, and subsequent conferences I've been at that is just, I've just never seen before. So we've been trending in this direction that whole time, but I really do feel like we're hitting a sort of a critical mass right now. Absolutely. And, and we're seeing a lot more adoption from advisors and boomers are, are really, I think, finding more value. At the end of the day, we all know and we hear investments and performance and rate of return continues to get more and more commoditized. And I think advisors are finding this as being a big differentiator. And, and as we all know, the behavior of our clients can mean the world of difference when it comes to the success and the outcomes that they have financially. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of things that, that I want to talk about in here is we've really kind of built and positioned ourselves in the in the industry with our approach, which we we call the bucket plan. Of course, the bucket planning has been around or bucket planning in general has been around for for longer than I have. But we've built kind of a, a process around helping clients really understand and time segment their money. Three simple buckets, a now bucket, a soon bucket and a later bucket. And Eric Clark at the Ascent Conference he threw something up on, on stage. I remember I took a picture of it. He threw up a statistic. I don't know if this came from you and your team and some of the research that you do, but he's people who are kind of compartmentalizing or time segmenting or bucketizing their money, whatever you want to call it, they were 12 times less likely to go to cash when markets became volatile and two and a half times the increase in their long-term savings. Those are, those are some some pretty pretty strong numbers in, in terms of kind of helping people understand and compartmentalize and, and bucketize their money in a certain way. Can you speak a little bit to that? I mean, what's been kind of some of your research or, or what you've seen out there from the, the behavioral side of that? Yeah, let me, let me speak to those two studies. So on the sort of downside 
protection side. This was a study that was done during the great financial crisis by a competitor of ours, so I won't name them, but they <laughs> thank you, but thank you for the research. So they they did this they did this observed sort of observational differences in 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 people who had their money in in bucketized, I like your word, in sort of segmented named accounts versus those who were in sort of lump sum traditional accounts. And the difference was, I believe, 5% liquidation versus 60% liquidation for those who had a named account. And what's incredible is it's just so simple. But, but what happens is when that account is not named and it's not segmented by time or some other distinction, it just sort of becomes amorphous to us. It becomes unreal. And it lacks the psychological term for this is salience. It lacks sort of vividness or realness. And that's like a, a whole nother conversation we could have. The, the increased savings piece that he's talking about, I believe is from a Canadian, Canadian research that looked at showing people a picture of their children before they were able to make a decision about their money. So they compared two groups of people, one in just sort of a control group, no, just normal bank account. And then the second group had this bank account where every time you would log in before you could transact any business as part of this study, you had to look at a picture of your kids for five seconds. And so effectively sort of reminding yourself what this was for, like making it less abstract, making it more concrete. And what they found is that people who looked at a picture of their kids for five seconds before making a financial decision were more than twice as likely to save for, for retirement. And so it's just, again, like what's, what's sort of amazing about this work is how simple it is. But again, it comes back to that salience thing, right? I mean, we can get so mired in the here and now, everything about our psychology, everything about our physiology is wired to have us respond to threats or perceived threats in the moment. And we really become, become myopic. We really become short-term if we're not in these bucketed strategies that allow us to think about our financial life over something like more of a realistic timeline and, and to do so in a way that's salient or vivid or real and connected to our actual lives. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, my partner, Jason Smith, who authored the book, the, the Bucket Plan, and was the first one to kind of introduce me to a lot of these concepts when we started C2P about 12 years ago. I, I remember him telling the story that when he started bucketing money, it was just quite simply walking up to his dry erase board, and he would essentially kind of write three segments of clients' money on a dry erase board in like a square or a rectangular box. And like the first one was the money that they wanted to keep on hand, cash, emergency fund, just kind of off the table from volatility or investments. The middle one was the money that maybe they wanted to have more conservatively invested. Maybe it was to drive income in the first phase of their retirement. And then the third one was the one where they were willing to kind of have a long-term commitment and focus to be able to allocate that money more towards investments that, that could drive higher expected return. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember him sharing the story one day, he'd kind of subtotal up the numbers at the top of each of those rectangles, and then he would just circle it. And one of his clients sat at the desk and goes, wow, that kind of just looks like three, three simple buckets of money. And at that point, he was just like, I think it was the aha moment of how simplistic 
that visual can actually be, but how powerful it is because it gets people bought in and vested into the commitment around, hey, I can stay the course with that third bucket because I have buckets one and two to give me the confidence to be able to do so. And the, the other thing that you mentioned a couple of times, you, you mentioned the word simplicity, simplicity over and over again is I think sometimes advisors kind of confuse simplicity for lack of sophistication. And in terms of what we do when it comes to creating asset allocation frameworks and retirement income plans and tax optimization and all of these things, there, there's a lot of sophistication, but Ultimately, what I found in my own practice is just having the three buckets to be able to communicate all the sophistication we're doing behind the scene really shows the client at the end of the day, there is a plan in place. Here's what you need to know. Here's how much you have segmented and, and again, allows them to really just stay the course. So, yeah, so, so much, so much to say there in terms of simplicity. So Richard Feynman, the great, the great science educator, he has this great saying that if you want to know how well someone understands something, or if you want to find holes in your own understanding, sort of explain it to someone, explain it to a layperson in under five minutes. And this is actually how I, when, when people come to me and ask me sort of how should I vet a financial advisor, that's always one of the things I say to them is, is talk to, talk to him or her and, and ask them to explain their process and their un unique differentiation in under five minutes in sort of jargon-free terms. And if they can't do that, they don't get it, right? Like I think we're selling obfuscation and complexity and all these things as a way to create distance between us and, and clients or potential clients because we're insecure about what we know or we're insecure about what we offer. But for people who have a great offering, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication and in, in terms of your, your previous point about him sort of stumbling onto this, there's something that I think we need to keep in mind. There's, there's something in martial arts known as the circular theory of self-defense. So in something like karate, instead of trying to just block an attack full on, shield yourself from it full on, you sort of roll with that resistance and use that person's inertia or use that person's attack against them and sort of use that momentum against them and, and use that to throw them, so to speak. And I think we wanna try and do that with human behavior wherever possible. People bucket their money mentally already, right? They, they already do this. This is a human tendency known as mental accounting. And so we already are doing this. It's not a question of whether or not people are going to bucket their money. They are, right? This is just a very human tendency. The only question is, are we going to bucket this money in a smart way or in a haphazard way? And so anytime there's a human behavior that we're aware of that can be used to our advantage, we should harness that and use it in a sophisticated, intelligent way, instead of letting it just sort of happen haphazardly, which is, you know, what you all are doing there. You're taking this natural tendency to bucket and you're doing it in an intelligent way. Yeah, I never thought about that. But I, I mean, I love that concept, especially when you're having some of those introductory conversations with a potential client is, starting to ask good questions about what their experience might be with mental accounting because they 
they might already have somewhat of a system for it, but I, I kind of love the approach of like their system might be very haphazard, right? They don't have a lot of structure and and rationale for why they do the things they do other than it just makes them feel good. Yeah. So that's awesome. A couple more things I just want to touch on during our time together. I loved when you guys on stage were talking about what economists call volatility, psychologists would call uncertainty, and there's nothing people hate worse than not knowing. You know, that statement was just such kind of an eye-opener that so many times were, if you think about the spectrum of your conversation, the mind and the market, like we're kind of numb to what goes on in the market. We know it goes up, it goes down. We know long-term returns are great, but you know that kind of concept of what economists or what we would call volatility, psychologists call uncertainty. Can you speak to that a little bit and, and how we might be able to have more meaningful or empathetic conversations with clients more from a psychologist viewpoint than an economist viewpoint? Yeah, so... One of the things that we have to understand about humankind is that we are wired to be cognitive misers, right? We're wired to think as little as possible. So your brain accounts for two to three percent of your body weight, but it takes up like 20 to 25 percent of the calories that you expend every day. And so your body and your brain are always looking for ways to think less and be less calorically expensive. And one of the most calorically expensive sort of arduous things you can do is endure uncertainty because your mind is always cranking with sort of like, what's next? Is it this? Is it that? Is it this? Is it that? And so it's this really sort of emotionally upsetting experience that is also sort of physiologically tough for us. And so a lot of times what we'll do in a period of uncertainty is we'll either sort of paper over it with overconfidence. You say, oh, I know exactly what's going to happen, right? With Use this sort of bravado or overconfidence to overcome that felt insecurity. The other thing that we tend to do is just sort of assume the worst, right? So, well, well I don't know what's going to happen. So I'm just going to assume it's horrific, right? And then, and then if, I've, if I've sort of imagined this worst case, then I'm prepared for the worst. And it can't be worse than that. <clears throat> but of course, both approaches have obvious drawbacks for clients. I mean, you don't want a, a client who's sort of imagining the worst and fearful and down in the dumps. And you don't want a client who's sort of artificially overconfident. And in, in that talk, I, I cited research that I thought was really cool that I've been sort of drawing on a lot lately. And it was research coming out of World War II, and they looked at they looked at ulcers in different parts of, of England. Now, the city of London during World War II was getting bombed nightly, right? So London was just absolutely wrecked by nightly bombings. But in the exurbs and out in the country, the bombings were far more sporadic, right? It's every 10 days, every two weeks. And so they, they endured far less shelling from the Germans. But, but when they looked at the health outcomes, they found that the people in the cities had better health outcomes, fewer ulcers than people in the country, because there was something so unnerving about not knowing, right? If you're in London, it sucked. 
but it was what it was, right? You knew it was coming, you knew what to prepare for. If you're out in the exurbs or out in the country, you just don't know. So you're always looking around corners, you're always biting your nails. And that was the thing that was ultimately more damaging. Now, the same is true of our clients. And one of the things that's so powerful psychologically about a bucketing approach when it comes to uncertainty is that you're really taking the worst case scenario off the table. You have bought them a portion of certainty with that short term or that safety bucket, that sort of base of the pyramid buys them some period of certainty. And usually that period of certainty is roughly aligned with sort of the length of a bear market and something they can live through. And so one of my favorite business studies around this was Hyundai. During the great financial crisis, of course, people weren't buying a lot of cars in 2008, 2009. And Hyundai said, look, what can we do? We're, we're getting our butts kicked here. Like, what can we do to sell more cars? And they did this thing where they said, look, if you lose your job, we'll buy the car back. So you can buy a brand new car. And if you get fired, we'll take it back. And of course, like even in a even in a horrible depression, right? I mean, even in the Great Depression, three in four people still had their jobs much better than that during the great financial crisis. And so Hyundai was able to take that worst case scenario off the table and say, look, if you get fired, we'll take the car back full price, no questions asked. And the safety bucket or the short-term bucket does the very same thing. You reduce uncertainty, you take the worst case off the table, and it does a world of good for people. Absolutely. It a hundred percent does. One of the things that that my partner Jason has always said is the worst risk or one of the worst risks out there in finance is freak out risk, mm -hmm. right? Freakout risk is that markets become volatile and we have some sort of black swan event like 2008, nine, or when the pandemic hit and markets went down 30% and people just freak out. And what's been amazing from a behavioral standpoint is, as you mentioned, when clients know they have their liquidity, their now bucket, their emergency fund, some cash in the bank, when they know they have a portion of their money in that soon bucket, that conservative bucket, it, it pretty much takes freak out risk off the table for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Because freak out the, there's a contagion risk with, with freak out risk, right? I, we don't, we don't freak out in, in, in micro, we freak out in macro We're we're freaked out globally. But if you can take that off the, off the table for people, they're able to leave the rest of that money alone. It's brilliant. Definitely. So the, the last thing that I kind of just want to chat about here is another big, big takeaway for me in listening to your talk was just kind of, you titled it frame with your aims. And I, I thought it was quite brilliant in like how you could take a, something that maybe could be a negative and with the right language, frame it in a way that that isn't so horrible. And you gave a couple examples, like you gave an airline example where 
you know, instead of saying like 20% of our flights are delayed, you're using the language 5% more on-time departures than industry average. And so talk about how kind of framing can play into behavioral finance and ensuring our investors are, are staying the course and optimizing for the most efficient outcomes. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So, so much of what we deal in in finance is subjective. And when things are vague or when things are subjective, things like wealth and things like enough and sufficiency, like these are all sort of moving targets that have a high degree of subjectivity to them. And so whenever this is the case, people look for frames, right, or points of reference to, to anchor onto. And we want to pick an anchor that is conducive to our clients making good decisions. So one of the things that I think I cited in that in that talk, if I didn't, I, I should have, is there's interesting research to show that savings is perceived as a current loss. So when we ask people to save, we're basically asking them, it, it feels like losing money. So when you ask people, could you save 20% of your income? Most people go, absolutely not because it's it's perceived as a 20% loss and they go that's too that's too spartan that's too draconian that that's too much i could i couldn't do it but if you if you ask the same people could you live on 80% of your income most of them say yeah i could do that because 80% is is seen as as a positive and I gave i gave sort of a funny example in that talk there's this famous study about frame beef fat right to say beef is 20% fat versus 80% lean, it's the same deal, right? I mean, it's the same, it's the, it's the same conversation. It's I don't want to be eating 20% fat beef, right? Right. <laughs> right. But when you call it 20% fat, you're like thinking about your hamburger and it just seems gristly and weird, right? And so we just got to do the same thing with our clients, right? So you could say, hey, the S&P was down 20% last year, which is going to send them into freakout mode. Or you could say, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Client, you're still whatever, 87% on track for your retirement. Like even after a rough year, you're still 87% on track for your retirement. The other thing that I would encourage advisors to do is frame in terms of behavior because behavior is within our control. Other thing that we don't want to do is frame in terms of stuff that we don't have control over because it leads to learned helplessness. We frame, we say, hey, the S&P was down whatever, 22% last year. And you're like, well, the, ugh, like that sucks and I can't do anything about it. But if we say if we say in that annual meeting, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Client, let's talk about your performance last year. You contributed every two weeks. You stayed the course. You didn't freak out. That is a good year. Like any year where you did like you did all the things that you needed to do to put you on a path for financial freedom and success. So look for positive ways to frame something that are that are honest. Like this shouldn't be this isn't a this isn't an exercise in in spin or dishonesty, but look for look for positive frames that are true and then frame in terms of things that are within within their power, right? To give them something to to hook on to that they can do something about. Yeah. One of the things that, that always stood out to me in our annual review process, one of the things that we do to your point is we go back and kind of revalidate their bucket plan, how much they have in their now bucket, maybe what went out in income, 
what they have in their soon bucket, what they have in their later bucket. And in any market environment, there's always a positive thing to talk about with the bucket plan. Like over the last 12 months, as I'm doing annual reviews right now, the positive thing is, aren't we glad we segmented a portion of our money and are now in our soon bucket? These monies really preserved their value. Obviously, in different times like 2021, the now and the soon bucket aren't performing like the later bucket, but the positive to talk about there is look at how much of the market return our later bucket was able to capture. And so always having something positive to speak to is such a big differentiator of not just lumping all the client's money into one big bucket or one big pile of investments and not really being able to speak to the purpose of each one. Yeah, you you make a great point there. It's one of the further psychological benefits. And I mean, I think there's even in a year like last year, where it was a tough year, basically across asset classes, you could say, look, aren't we glad, aren't we glad we had the sort of the short term bucket, right? Like that, that did well, we're excited about that. And you could also speak to some of the other more aggressive buckets and say, well, hey, this may be a good time to get a little get a little gutsy with the with the long term bucket or sort of this this dream bucket as we as we call it at, at Orion. So I, I think that's really wise to use those buckets to frame positively and to frame in ways that can promote action and control. Absolutely. We're we're for clients that have the ability to we're rebalancing some money from that soon bucket to the later bucket to take advantage of buying at, at discounted valuations now or again the same thing goes to be said in 2021 we were talking about taking some gains out of the later bucket and reallocating to the soon bucket because of the frothy valuations that were out there and so just having that conversation in that framework. So Dr. Crosby, this has been awesome. I know one of the things that you're doing at Orion, we really value the relationship with Orion and, and you're over there and, and essentially creating some really cool tools for advisors like ourselves to be able to help communicate some of the behavioral concepts and components. And so I know at Prosperity Capital Advisors and at C2P, we're excited to be able to tap into some of the things we're we're right now engaging with the planning software that you guys have, because that kind of, as you mentioned earlier, can help visualize and bucketize some of the money. I know you guys are doing a lot of work in terms of risk tolerance, and I appreciate all your, your effort going into just continuing to build really cool tools for us to be able to use with our clients to help educate and, and keep, them, keep them invested in a way that's going to produce better outcomes to them long-term. Yeah, well, it's it's fun for me and it's great when I meet people like you and your crew who who get it and I think who have been doing the right thing rather intuitively for some time and we can maybe give some philosophical and scientific backing to help folks like you take it to even the next level. So, it's a great great partnership. Awesome. Two quick things. Your your latest book that's out there. What's the name of it if people want to go grab it and and be able to learn a little bit more about what you're doing? Yeah, the, the two I'd recommend are the laws of wealth and the behavioral investor. Yeah, the laws of wealth and the behavioral investor are the place to start. Laws of wealth is maybe better for client-facing stuff and behavioral investor for industry-facing. Awesome. And you have your own podcast, Standard Deviation, right? So people right. can go check that out pretty much on any major podcast median out there? Yeah, Standard Deviations, always happy for new listeners and, and good ratings. So go check it out. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time today and thanks everybody for listening.
The Bucket Plan On Demand series is brought to you by Clarity to Prosperity, a financial training, coaching, and IP development organization led by financial advisors, coaches, and business leaders committed to taking a holistic approach on advising. To learn more about our organization and upcoming training opportunities for financial professionals, visit ClarityToProsperity.com.